0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Good Fight, The Majority Report, The Progressive Magazine, commentary from Glenn Ford, Counterspin, The Young Turks, The David Packman Show, activism from The Unfuck It Up Project, The Tom Hartman Program, and Congressional Dish. And a quick warning that this episode may make you feel like you have split personality on today's topic. That's certainly how I feel.
1: Everyone has a dream. Some kids want to become citizens. Some adults want to retire with dignity. Me, I have a dream too. I've always dreamt of a string of man-made private islands that spell out my own first name in the Pacific Ocean, within chopper distance of my corporate headquarters. But now, I may not get a chance to realize my dream. I'm Bradley Scaife Koch, healthcare entrepreneur. For years, my network of cut-rate insurance companies, for-profit emergency care centers, and especially my medical debt collection agencies has been making my dream come true. We're almost done with the letter B, and it's a sight to behold. But now, thanks to Obamacare, all of that may come to an end. Obamacare makes preventative healthcare for free, Free cancer screenings, free physical exams, free vaccines. Free I mean to you, but for me and for all of us who profit when preventable conditions go unprevented, this so-called freedom isn't free at all. You see, I can't stock my island chain with menageries of sequin bedecked endangered species with the kind of money you make from early detection. If you want to fall asleep to the sight of a chimpanzee in a reflective neon pink unitard shimmering in the light of a solid platinum disco ball, as I do, then you need the kind of profits that can only be reaped from full-blown medical emergencies. Obamacare's tragic focus on preventing tragedies may turn America, this hallowed land of opportunity, into just another unmarked mass grave full of the corpses of the hopes of people like me. Because achieving my American dream, that's a preventable condition too. Next time you think about giving healthcare.gov another whirl, think about that mass grave. Think about my islands never existing. Think about my chimp without his unitard. And join me at stop this Obamacare monster before people start preventing highly profitable emergencies.org. That bee's getting lonely. It's time to put a Radley in the Pacific. I walk a
2: lonely
3: Big story in in New York Times today about just how successful the Affordable Care Act and particularly the aspect of expanding Medicaid in Kentucky has been. They have already signed up and enrolled. Well, um, signed up and enrolled. 56,000 new people to health insurance plans. They have about 10, 11 times that in uninsured people. So they've already basically signed up about 10% who had no health insurance. That's pretty stunning. And even more stunning than those numbers is to just sort of read the stories of people I mean when you compare the complaints from you know Dylan Radigan is now paying more you know $500 a month more for health insurance versus people who are like I haven't been to a doctor in 13 years I've got this ailment that ailment this ailment I was just going to deal with it more and wait to die the per a capita income in Beth, uh, breath it, County, I guess, is $15,000 a year. The rates of diabetes, hypertension, and other health problems earn this part of Kentucky the nickname Coronary Valley. Now, you recall, this is a state that um, is one of the few who we perceive as red states, they have a Democratic governor, Steve Bashir. He went ahead to expand Medicaid. He also set up one of, uh, I guess, 16 state-based exchanges, rather than saying to the feds, you deal with it. And it's paying off dividends. Uh, there's a lot of people, I imagine, walking around Kentucky Particularly um, Appalachians who are saying, holy crap. Maybe we should all move to Kenya and get under this socialism thing because this seems pretty good.
4: So, if you actually implement health care reform and try to deliver for your people, it might actually
3: work. It might actually work. That's or stunning. The danger is we're going to have a lot of people applying for Kenyan citizenship. Right. Going around reading marks
4: That Lord knows. I hope I get my canyons. And and
3: I I, want to remind you, uh, people, that you know of that uh, fifty-seven thousand that have signed up for new health care coverage. Almost forty-six thousand of them are on Medicaid. That is full-on socialized insurance. It's not socialized med- uh, medical care but it is socialized insurance full on
4: I was just thinking going back to McConnell though I mean this is in some ways it seems like an obvious point but I think you know the the implications of running on this abstract thing called Obamacare and Kenya and all that nonsense versus I am the guy who in my reelection campaign my number one commitment is to take away your health insurance right that is quite a proposition to have to run on
3: yeah, that's going to be much uh, harder, much harder, I think, to, you know, it's it's one thing to campaign against something that is just behind a black curtain, as, as it were, uh, but as soon as that curtain gets opened up, there's a problem. Now, you that know, curtain gets opened up to you and your family, have a health care plan. Right? What's that? Like
4: yes, that curtain gets opened up to something good.
3: Yes, then you've got a problem running against that.
5: President Obama sure got a mess on his hands. He's totally bungled the rollout of his signature health care policy first. And still, there's the website snafus over at healthcare.gov, and now there's the uproar over Obama's broken promise that people could keep the health insurance policy they have if they like it. problem is, a lot of those policies have already been canceled, either by the employer who wants to save money, or by the insurance company because it doesn't want to comply with the extra coverage that the Affordable Care Act requires. Obviously, Obama shouldn't have made a promise he couldn't keep, and it looks like he'll have to take Bill Clinton's advice and make good on that promise, even though that will even further complicate this horrendous debut. I don't feel bad for Obama. It's his screw-up. And if he had championed Medicare for All, he wouldn't be in this bind. Still, there's much about Obamacare that's to be commended, especially the ban on denying people insurance if they have a pre-existing condition. But I feel bad for the people whose policies have been canceled or whose rates are going up, and I worry that Obama is so discrediting the federal government's role in health care that he's going to make it harder than ever to get to Medicare for All. That would be the biggest downside of the careless way he's implemented Obamacare. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
6: not because the administration is particularly incompetent or unlucky, and certainly not as a result of the Republicans' unrelenting hostility to the Obama health insurance plan. Indeed, ever since the bill's passage in early 2010, the GOP's holy war against Obamacare has served to solidify reflexive Democratic support for what has always been a Republican-inspired bill. The truth is, the Affordable Health Care Act is coming undone because of its own tortured internal logic. At root, it is a fraud on the public, a scheme to subsidize and more deeply embed a private insurance system that can only make profits by denying sick and vulnerable people health care and playing different demographics of Americans against each other. As every other industrialized country in the world has already learned, it is impossible to build a genuine, universal health care system on a cutthroat capitalist foundation. Private insurers make money by betting against the health interests of their customers. Obama served his corporate masters by conspiring to make tens of millions more Americans into customers of private insurers. He tried to dress up one of the greatest corporate subsidies in history as if it were a solemn national mission, a rebirth of the social compact between the American people. But of course, Obamacare is no such thing. It is a racket to prop up private insurers with public money while allowing the profiteers to continue to run the show. You can't hide a truth that big. The Obamacare website has suffered from terminal complexity because white collar crime is usually quite complex. The website attempts to reconcile the profit margins and various products of a universe of private insurance corporations while at the same time pretending to serve the health needs of the people at an affordable cost. Obamacare claims to be in the business of serving both the public and corporate stockholders, but that is mission impossible. If Obamacare is based on making profits for private corporations, if that's what keeps the system going, then the public's health care needs will always be an afterthought. And that will be obvious in the way the website is organized, as a sales platform that matches federal subsidies with corporate products, rather than matching people with the medical resources they need to survive and thrive. Website complexity and failures aside, Obamacare can never become part of a national social compact, something of which all Americans can be proud. That's because, by definition, corporate insurance schemes divide people into winners and losers, although, of course, the big winner is always the corporation. Young, healthy people know that they are the fatted calves of the insurance business, and they're avoiding Obamacare like the plague. If this were really a national health care program, like Medicare for All, then most young people would join in the national health care mission. But this is just Obama working a scam for the insurance companies, and young folks know it. Anybody who manages to get access to the website knows it. The fatal flaw in Obamacare can't be fixed. The best thing that could happen would be a quick and total collapse. Large majorities of Americans still support Medicare for all, but Obamacare stands in the way of a real national health plan, just as the Republican right-wingers that invented Obamacare back in 1989 intended.
7: What's kind of like wrecking a major city through a storm, inadequate flood protection, and then withholding emergency aid so that 2,000 Americans die? If you set a poorly designed website that makes it difficult to sign up for health insurance, congratulations. You have the kind of imagination that qualifies you for a high-level job in corporate media. Yes, major outlets were comparing the Bush administration's catastrophic response to Katrina with the problems with the Affordable Care Act website. The meme seems to have started with a November 15th New York Times story. Health law rollouts stumbles draw parallels to Bush's hurricane response. Who's drawing these parallels? The piece quotes a Bush White House official who says, the echoes to the fall of 2005 are really eerie. What's really eerie is that pundits took this absurd comparison and ran with it. NBC Nightly News anchor Brian Williams declared, quote, President Obama now finds himself compared to President George W. Bush as in the problems with the health care plan have become President Obama's Katrina, close quote not everyone accepted the analogy williams colleague david gregory for one demurred quote frankly i liken this more brian to the iraq war close quote that would be when george w bush invaded a country to get rid of non-existent weapons killing hundreds of thousands of people okay Another highlight of this insulting line of thinking was when Fox News' Chris Wallace declared that the comparison of Katrina to the Obamacare website was unfair to Bush. Katrina was a terrible event, but it began and ended within a week, Wallace said, whereas the website glitches, quote, could affect people's lives for years to come, close quote. Hard to know just what to say to that.
0: specifically he was asked about the possibility of the Republicans bringing up something to replace Obamacare, and this is what he said.
6: Well, when you look at Obamacare, what you see is a government-centered healthcare delivery system. That's not what the American people want. The American people want uh, to be able to pick their own type of health insurance, they want to be able to pick their own
5: doctor, they want to be able to pick their own hospital.
2: Will that be up for a vote in 2014 now, a bill for that?
6: will that
0: be up for a vote in 2014? <laughs> we'll see. He laughed. He laughed. Now, now, it's not just Boehner, though. It turns out he's just one of many. Let's watch that. Great montage by J.R. Jackson.
6: And, and, and their folks. What would you do? What would you, how would you replace it? Well, I guess like sitting here and, and going to go through, you know, in a complex issue like that with 1626 to go, get you don't back. think it's that you have a
7: get... responsibility as a U.S. senator to do better than that in terms of offering a solution for what to do next? Well, I, I, I appreciate you're your trying to lecture me in the morning. There is no Republican proposal that I'm aware of that would seek to address the problems, basically 40 million uninsured Americans, that the Affordable Care Act seeks to address. Isn't that true?
8: Well, David, I would say this. Let's start with the principle that uh,
9: in medicine, the first rule is to do no harm.
7: Senator Lee, where's the Republican
9: bill that will solve the problem of rising health care costs and the millions and millions of uninsured, uh, making sure that insurance companies uh, are not able to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions.
7: Where is the alternative to help the American people uh, who want some sort of health care solution?
0: You know, there are a lot of Republican proposals.
6: And, And that's the problem. I mean, with all due respect, that's part of the problem with the culture here, is that somebody thinks that I could solve Obamacare in 14 minutes itself solve the solve the health care crisis in fourteen minutes
7: i don't have the power to fix it you do that's what a U.S. senator does is you sponsor law you know this it's not a lecture it's a concern i'm asking what are you okay. gonna do
2: about it well and, and and i share that concern and and so
7: what do you plan to present what is a viable alternative that really solves the problem
9: well i would say let's get to the table on a bipartisan basis and let's make sure that we have a plan that has more choice not less Let's have one that where we're driving down costs and increasing competition.
0: There used to, be, it used to be repeal and replace, and now all I hear from you guys is, is repeal. Uh, yes, that's right, because we have a piece of legislation that people have recognized is going to be harmful to the American people. I agree with you. We do need to offer something else. Several of us have. The fact that we don't yet have consensus on it doesn't mean that there isn't good reason. To protect americans who are fearful
2: i just lost my health insurance i've got a child with diabetes i need my health insurance i'm scared please stop this from happening those are real facts. and what do you
7: say to them senator when they say uh, please help me what is the fix that you offer them i looked at the list of bills that you've sponsored there's not one that offers a solution to the current problems with health care except to get rid of the existing laws that enough <laughs>
6: Well, that's the only solution that will work. And people are tired of these focus group tested, blow dried answers that people give, that that all
7: sound the same. Uh, I love that ending. I They're
10: sick
11: it. of those God. those
0: manufactured
11: answers, so I'm protesting by never providing any <laughs>
0: answers
10: whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> on
11: Mike Lee, Jake Tappert posed the question for about five minutes. No, can't, I was yeah. right. Like, I'm like, get, let it go. Go, <laughs> get, get to get, him. So because he's, he's, given stopped, him, right? he's given him a chance to think of an answer. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. And
7: Mike yeah. was well, like thinking, right. thinking, thinking, <laughs> thinking. <laughs> yes. nope, nope, I got nothing. No, nope, still so, nothing. No, yeah, i have a bunch of proposals, I think. I mean, I heard about a bunch of proposals. The
9: correct answer would be the Republican proposal was already announced. Acted by Democrats in Congress and the Democratic President of the
8: United States. That's right. That because that's exactly what the Foundations' what
6: proposal, mm-hmm. Mitt Romney's proposal, which is what Obama did, and then Chris Christie. Oh, I'm not going to come up with an answer in 14 mm-hmm. minutes. No, but wait, 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 wait. No. You've been criticizing Obamacare for how many years? Four years. You had four mm-hmm. years
1: to get come up with an answer. Not like uh, it seemed like he was like oh 14 minutes. But what the, Oh shit! I never thought of
11: that. <laughs> I'm like
1: oh to replace it. Oh, no, like oh I think you
11: mistook me. For someone who gives a fuck, yeah. like no, 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 I don't give a cat You don't have health care. Who cares? You're not my daughter. I don't care about you. I never even thought about you until this guy asked me the question for the first time in my life. And I'm like, 14 minutes. I don't know. I I, 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 never
3: thought about it. No, I was planning to screw you. Never give you health <laughs>
0: One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restraint. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind the scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support.
5: President Obama did the right thing on Thursday by taking the responsibility for the problems with the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. He did what a mature person in a position of leadership does. He owned up, and he did what was necessary politically to try to fix the problem as best he could at this late date. I got to say, I do feel a little bit bad for him. It can't be fun to see your signature program take such a bad belly flop. And I feel nauseous seeing his Republican opponents gleefully exploiting this. They never wanted the Affordable Care Act in the first place, but what have they offered as an alternative? nothing but the same old private health insurance system that's ripped people off for decades. You know, insurance companies that cancel your policy once you reach a ceiling of health care expenses, insurance companies that comb over your application to find ways to deny you coverage just when you need it, insurance companies that discriminate against you if you have a pre-existing condition. I don't hear Republicans proposing a way to fix these problems, which after all, spurred Obama to propose the Affordable Care Act. No, they're content to ridicule the president from the sidelines. And it may serve their narrow political interest to do so, but it sure doesn't serve the country. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
2: Phantom kisses buzzing like the insects. Beads of sweat dripping down on the rent shack. My candy land melted down to syrup while I watch the water roll down. May hey, the lust comes in the face. Sit down and marry at all So sweet my mouth was searing But the words your mouth was sweeter
12: Joining me today is Gerald Friedman, he's professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts. He's also the author of funding plans for a number of proposed single-payer health care systems at the state level. Professor Friedman, we've been hearing a kind of three-pronged opposition to the Affordable Care Act. Some opposition comes along the lines of labeling it as socialistic or communistic. Then we have the economic arguments arguing that it's simply not affordable. And then we have the quality of care arguments arguing that we would actually have worse health care under a Obamacare or even further a single payer type system. With you I want to focus specifically on the economics and the affordability. Before we kind of get into the details, you've actually put together plans which show quite clearly that transitioning from an employer-based for-profit system to single payer would be very affordable, wouldn't it?
11: Yes, absolutely. It would save if we did it for the whole United States, it would save in the first year about 600 billion dollars. That's 600 billion. So um, if you talk about sustainability and whether a health care plan can be maintained into the future, um, the real question is whether we can do anything except single-payer, and in that I include the Affordable Care Act, which is a step in the right direction, um, will make the health care system more efficient, will cover more people, um, so it's good in all those things. But it doesn't really address the cost issues and sustainability. The White House estimates that the Affordable Care Act will save $800 billion over the next decade, which sounds like a lot of money until you think that we'll be spending about $40 trillion on healthcare over the next decade. So the Affordable Care Act will produce minimal savings. And the reason for that is because it's not socialist, it's certainly not communist, it's uh, the Affordable Care Act is basically uh, dr- was basically drafted by the Heritage Foundation and was first proposed in Congress by Newt Gingrich. Uh, they're the ones who proposed an, an individual mandate um, and the establishment of the exchanges, um, uh, and that was translated in Massachusetts into Romney Care. A system that still leaves the private insurance system in control, and as long as the private insurers remain in control of the system, um, we will have a fragmented billing system that is very expensive to operate, um, and we won't be covering everybody.
12: So Um, let's let's pick up pick up there with the proposed single payer funding plans. Let's take uh it one side at a time. First, the savings, and then the expenses what areas would a single-payer system reduce cost in as compared to this for-profit employer-connected health care system that we have now where would the savings be
11: okay the savings would come in three areas the first is by eliminating excess administration excess bureaucracy in the insurance sector itself um, The federal government provides Medicare to virtually all senior citizens and a great many um, disabled and needy people under age 65. And it does it with an administrative burden of under 2%. That is less than 2% of what is spent is spent on processing bills and paper. The rest is spent on health care. For the private insurance system, The ratios spent on bureaucracy and waste and paperwork is closer to 20%. So we could save about $200 billion right away if we moved to a Medicare administration instead of private insurance.
12: Now, simply to play devil's advocate, could, could one not argue that it would not be reasonable to assume that if the entire population of the US were to be wrapped into a similar type of program there would be no question that that 2% ratio would go up would that be a fair criticism or is that oh, not No
11: no that would be it would actually go the other way because there are what economists call economies to scale in operating an insurance system if you include everybody it's even easier to process the paperwork than if you include only part of the population. Okay, good. For example, you don't have to check eligibility; you just have to see if the person's living and breathing and an American, and then they they're covered. Um, so the savings would be even greater than I'm assuming. Second, um, and you have about the same 200 billion dollars in savings um, in provider offices. The average American hospital these days has more people involved in billing than they have beds. I mean, this is just inconceivable how much waste goes on in hospitals and provider offices because they have to deal with so many different insurers, they have to process so much paper for so many different companies. So we would be able to save our money in provider offices. Uh, people working in billing and insurance operations and officers could go do something useful with their lives. And third, we have enormous waste because of monopolistic practices by the drug industry and medical device manufacturers. Um, American drug prices are, according to the McKinsey Corporation, about 60% higher than prices for the same drugs in other countries. My daughter, we're in Rome right now, and my daughter was sick. We took her to a hospital um, where there was no bill, no processing of paper, and they gave us prescriptions. I took the prescriptions to a pharmacy, and for a Z-Pack antibiotic, which sells for about sixty dollars in the United States, I paid eight euros, one fifth as much. All the rest in the United States is waste fraud, and monopolistic profit for the drug industry. We would get rid of that with a single-payer system. So that would give us $600 billion in savings right away, and the savings would increase over time because instead of all this wasteful competition with every different hospital building maternity wards and competing for cardiac programs, etc., we would just organize our health care to provide efficient quality health care for everybody and try to keep everybody healthy so,
12: so the those sa- are the those are the savings in- numbers on the programs themselves and I think in the yes. limited time we have left I want you to touch a little bit on an intangible which is if employers no longer needed to administer health insurance benefits isn't there a savings to be had there for all of these small businesses and large corporations that are in principle so worried about the cost of health care
11: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I talk to friends who run small businesses around Amherst, Massachusetts, and the towns around there, and they hate having to deal with insurance because it's a really difficult decision that they have to make. What type of insurance to have? They know the people who work for them, and they know that what their needs are, but they have to deal with the expense. And then the average American business spends. Thousands of dollars processing, deciding what, processing paper and deciding what insurer to hire. Um, Last year, American business spent um, over $30 billion choosing insurance plans. Um, That expense would just go away. And people would be free to choose where to work on the basis of what the best job is for them instead of where they can get health insurance. Um, businesses would be able to hire people on the basis of who's good for the job instead of having to think, well, that person may run a medical bill, so we can't deal with them.
12: So uh, where is the best place where is the best place for our audience to see your entire uh, uh presentation on this? Because I think many of our viewers would be would be very interested in that.
11: Well if you Google me, there are various presentations. Um, up on YouTube, or whatever, uh, where I run through the plans a little more thoroughly. Um, Real News Network, not to pitch your competition, but Real <laughs> News Network did a four-part series with me uh, last year. Also, you can look at the National uh, Physicians for National Health Plan, (PNHP.org). They have uh, links to various things I've written, including my analysis of Uh, hr six seven six the national medicare for all bill
12: okay what what do you think is the best thing of the thing about the show that is best and most appealing to it to somebody who listens or watches because we cover everything and we do it well (laughs) why do you think people watch the show I think that it's a completely different angle. I don't think it's about being expansive or up to date. I think it's 99% of media that's out there is giving one story. It's giving a particular point of view and it's also not covering certain stories. So I don't know that it's about being up to date or expansive. I think it's it's a well, non Well, that's what I said. We cover everything. Well, we don't cover everything, Lewis. How could we cover everything? We cover 8 to 10 stories. Everything important, pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at DavidPakman.com.
0: Today's activism segment comes to you, as always, in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project, where creator Katie Goodman and activist director Katie Klabusik highlight individuals and organizations working to change the world. Today's campaign, Medicare You Can Buy Into. As covered before on this show, the Affordable Care Act is fundamentally health insurance reform, not health care reform. It does improve access to care for millions of Americans and reduces costs for individuals and families previously paying outrageous premiums. Hopefully, it'll also reduce the overall cost of health, a need that eats up around 17 cents of every dollar spent in this country, as people need not wait until they're in an emergency situation to see a doctor. But gaps in coverage remain, largely due to the majority of Republican governors across the country turning down the Medicaid expansion. What this means is that everyone should definitely take advantage of the plans afforded so many under the ACA. If you haven't yet, visit healthcare.gov before the December 15th deadline to have your coverage begin January 1st. After that, however, we still have work to do. Congressman Alan Grayson is urging Congress to expand Medicare so that anyone can buy into it. This is not freebie government paid for health care, as right-wing pundits and politicians spin it. Grayson's plan, being supported by a joint petition through the Daily Kos website, would simply allow you to purchase a plan through Medicare as you would a plan through any other company. The difference is how much more efficiently Medicare is run and how much simpler it would be to access. Your plan need not be tied to your employer with Medicare. It also need not be tied to the state where you live. It would also be be cheaper, likely much cheaper. The average private insurance company now spends 20% of its funds on administrative costs, down from around 30% before the ACA. Most studies of Medicare find that the program spends between 1% and 3% of its funds because it has no profit incentive. Medicare is an already existing public option. The Affordable Care Act can be approved upon without bulky, wonky legislation that would require a massive public support push to pass. H.R. 500, the Medicare You Can Buy Into Act, would add a public option to increase the competition in the health insurance market that even conservatives claim to want. Visit dailycoes.com slash campaigns to find the petition and contacting the congress.org to encourage your representatives to become co-sponsors of the Medicare You Can Buy Into Act.
2: You probably didn't fuck it up,
8: but they, whoever they are, they fucked it up, now it's fucked up. Do help unfu it up And then say, "Are you really so fucking busy? you can't take one fucking news, He unfuck it up. Because I'm willing to pick one thing to help unfu it up. will you join me?"
9: Paul Krugerman has an interesting blog in The New York Times today, California, here we come," about how well Obamacare is actually working in California. Very interesting. He's, uh, the numbers he says are increasingly encouraging, and the same thing in Kentucky. There was there was a, another blog over. I think it was a Democratic Underground about how, you know this this uh, kind of. I, I I'm I'm reluctant to put on labels, so I'll just give you the details. You know, a, a white guy making around eighteen grand a year with a couple of kids in Kentucky walks in and says, uh, "This Obamacare thing. Can I get something? I got no insurance, right?" Well, yes sir, not only do you get it, but you get it for free cuz you're eligible for Medicaid. Cuz uh, Kentucky took the uh, Medicaid money and their governor set up an exchange. Even though this is uh, I mean this is Mitch McConnell territory, right? And the guy's gone, uh, yeah, that's interesting, you know. I think I just became a Democrat. This is what the Republicans are so afraid of. I mean, this is what they are plain old flat out terrified by. There's no other way to describe it than just, you know, plain old terror. Here he is. His name was uh, Ronald Hudson. He was 32 years old, 35 years old. He never had insurance. He says his hospital bills were 23 grand at that point. He had five kids, made fourteen thousand dollars before taxes. He says, "Well, thank God, I believe I'm going to be a Democrat." And this is this is in an area where Romney took sixty six percent of the vote, Obama only took thirty one percent of the vote. Interesting uh, post about this by uh, Marcos Malizas over at the Daily Kos. So, do you get it? I mean, this is this is <laughs> as much as as uh, you know. I I was first in line, I guess, to say you know Obamacare. It's just Romney Care. It's it's uh, Heritage Foundation Care. It's a program that keeps intact the health insurance companies. But Bernie Sanders and Ron Wyden put this thing into it that said, starting in 2016, if a state wants to go single-payer, they can. And they are. So we have Vermont going single-payer in 2017, January 2017, or at the end of 2016. And in the meantime, you've got states, those states where the Republicans... Decided, or where the, where the, uh, the legislatures and the governors decided to take the Medicaid expansion and set up their own exchanges, uh, things are going quite well. Now, I've, you know, I've said this a couple of times, but I, I'm, I think I probably should repeat it at least once a day, if not once an hour, forever until the Democrats here in Washington, D.C. figure this thin thing, thing out and start doing something about it. Bobby Jindal! Down in Louisiana, Rick Scott. Down in Louisiana, Rick Snyder. Up in Michigan, Scott Walker in uh, in Wisconsin. Hey, you guys! Whatever happened to Ronald Reagan saying, "It's your money," about tax dollars in your states? And of course, they're not alone. I mean, it's thirty thirty plus states now, I believe. In these in these states with these Republican governors, they are perfectly happy to let the federal government take the tax money from the citizens of their state and bring that money to Washington, D.C. But then when Washington, D.C. says, here, we'll give this tax money back to your citizens in Ohio and Wisconsin and Florida and Louisiana and in Alabama and in Mississippi and in, in, uh, Tennessee, we would be glad to give that money back to your citizens. The money that they themselves paid, that you paid, that tax money. Now, the Koch brothers might have paid a little more of it than the average uh, guy who's making 6000 bucks a year, which might have something to do with why the Koch brothers are, are sponsoring keggers to get young people to not sign up for Obamacare to try and blow the system up. But the fact of the matter is that federal tax dollars came from these states, went to Washington, D.C., and, the, and Washington, D.C. is now saying to these states, hey, you want your tax dollars back? We'll give it to you in the form of Medicaid. We'll give it to you in the form of free health insurance for people who are making up to 132 percent of of poverty, or 147, or whatever, roughly one and a half times the rate of poverty. It's free, and you've got these governors saying, "No, we're not going to take it," and they're using this this excuse like, "Oh, that would make us dependent on the government." It's your money. It was your tax dollars to begin with, people your governor your governor and your republican state legislators your republican governor and your republican state legislature now there are a few exceptions jan brewer in arizona she said yeah we'll take our money back i think i think there might be one other exception one other democrat or one other republican who's taken their money back But this needs to be the mantra. I mean, the Democrats need to be designing campaign ads right now for the 2014 election. In those states that do not take Medicaid money back from the federal government, they need to say, citizens of Florida, taxpayers of Florida, you paid federal taxes, your money went to the federal government, the federal government wants to give your money back to you in the form of free health 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 insurance. But Rick Scott says he doesn't want to take that money because he's trying to hurt the Democrats. He's trying to make it look bad for Obama. He thinks if he doesn't take that money and you don't have health health insurance, that you'll be upset with Obama. Do you get this, people who live in Florida? Do you get this, people who live in Louisiana? Do you get this, Alabamians? Do you get this, people who live in Mississippi? Do you get this, Texans? Rick Perry doesn't want you to have your money. Your tax dollars, the money that you sent to Washington, D.C. in the form of federal taxes, Rick Perry doesn't want you to get that back in the form of free health care. So if you don't, you know, if, if you're making Walmart wages, if you're making just, you know, if you're making under the poverty level or under 130 or so percent of the poverty level, sorry, you don't get health insurance.
2: to you I promise to and
7: after all that's been said and done you're
1: just a me I can
8: let go Now the reason they... Have- The Affordable Care Act was passed because there was a problem with our old system. The old system was the one where we let the market be free to control our health care. And they let us down. Now, I don't really know how to summarize the old system, how to summarize the details, because it really was just the private health insurance industry making it up as they went along. I never understood what I would get from my health insurance, and my guesses were often wrong. Now, I know I've mentioned it many times on this show, but I'm still angry about it that I went to get a physical in either 2005 or 2006, and my information packet said it would cost me $20 for a copay. Okay, I can afford that. I went, got my physical, and everything was fine, and then over the course of the next few months, I received dozens of bills for each individual test that wasn't covered, and it added up to over 400 bucks. I got price gouged, and there was nothing I could do about it. How many of you have an example like that running through your head right now? How many of you are thinking of someone who got sick or injured and wound up with a giant stack of bills? And how many of you know someone who didn't survive because of those bills, either financially or literally? That was the old system. That system, the freedom for the market, the private system only, that system had to go. So we had to try something else. Option number two is that you go the completely other way, which would be that we have a government-run public health care system. In this country, the common name for that is single-payer. Now, I'm going to play you a clip right now from the October 7th episode of Democracy Now. They did an interview with Dr. Steffi Woolhandler. She is a professor and a primary care physician.
13: What does that mean when we say single-payer? Okay. Well, single-payer is also known as expanded and improved Medicare for All, also known as nonprofit national health insurance. It means you would get a card the day you're born and you'd keep it your entire life. It would entitle you to uh, medical care, all-needed medical care without co-payments, without deductibles. Um, and because it's such a simple system like Social Security, there would be very low administrative expenses. Uh, we would save about $400 billion, which would allow us to afford the system. I mean, I just want to remind you that when Medicare was rolled out in 1966, it was rolled out in six months using index cards. So if you have a simple system, you do not have to have all this expense and all this complexity and work. What do you mean, uh, index cards? They didn't have computers back in 1966. Okay, So they expanded, uh, went from zero to over 20 million people enrolled in Medicare in a period of six months. And because it was a simple system based on the Social Security records, uh, it was a tax based system. You didn't have hundreds of people programming the state of Oregon, thousands of different plans, tons of different co payments, deductibles, and restrictions, one single payment. Payer plan which is what we need for all Americans to give the Americans really the choice they want which is not the choice between insurance company A or insurance company B they want the choice of any doctor or hospital like you get with traditional Medicare
8: um, I want that one I want that one it was a clear good option it was the simplest option with the simplest system that actually saved us a ton of money And for those of you who have heard the spooky stories from the corporate-owned media that want you to be afraid of getting rid of our corporate-owned healthcare system, I've actually experienced the scary government healthcare system that they have over in Europe, and it was awesome. I loved it. This is how it worked. I went across the street to where the doctor's office was. Literally, across the street. They had little tiny doctor's offices all over the place. So I went over there, and the reason I was there is that I had had this, I don't know, weird thing that we just don't seem to get here in America, where my eyes were crusted shut. It was really, really gross. And um, (laughs) that's how we woke up every morning, and I had a sore throat, and I I was a disaster area. I had to go to the doctor's. And so I go in there, the guy was super nice, spoke English, thank God. And when he said goodbye, he stood there at the counter and I went over the counter and I stood there and I opened my wallet and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I just want to know how much it is. I, I don't have a lot of cash. I only have a credit card. Do you take credit card? And seriously, you guys, he laughed in my face and he said, oh, you're not in America anymore. You don't pay here. And he sent me home. And you want to know what's even crazier? Two days later, he called the house to see how I was doing. That's just how they do things there. And I wasn't paying into the German system. It was just, you get sick, you get treated. That's just the way it is. So that system doesn't scare me at all. And I loved it. And I would love to have that here. But here's the thing about the Democratic Party. They are supposed to be the crazy socialist liberals in this country. And in 2009, they had both houses of Congress and they had the presidency. So they really could have rammed through an awesome system like single payer. Well, you want to know why the Democrats suck and should be fired just as much as the Republicans should? The Democrats never even put that on the table. The cheapest solution, the easiest solution, the solution that the rest of the civilized world has, was never put on the table. It was not an option. Why? Well, in order for us to get the same health care as everybody else in the world, the kind of health care that doesn't take huge chunks of cash out of your pockets every time you get sick, Congress would have had to not just put rules on the private health insurance industry, they would have had to shut it down. And the Democrats are corporate just like the Republicans, and they weren't about to do that. And we're talking about an industry that has killed thousands and thousands of Americans, literally, by limiting their access to surgeries and medicine and treatments. And this isn't just something that I've read about. It actually happened to my friend. And yesterday was the anniversary of her death, so this is personal to me. So instead of doing what was best for American individuals, The Democrats decided to do option number three, which was a sort of compromise between the free market and those of us who need health care. What we're going to get is that the private health insurance industry, who earned the right to die, they're going to be allowed to exist, which in and of itself is a giant corporate favor. They're going to be allowed to still control our health care system, but from now on, they're going to have some rules. So let's look at the details of this mess of a system that they gave us that saved the private health insurance industry. So let's get started with the stuff that most of us are actually already aware of, but these are the new rules that were not in place before, but are in place now because of the Affordable Care Act. First, the insurance company can't just drop your coverage when you get sick. Also, kids can stay on their parents' insurance until their 26th birthday. Also, there will be no lifetime limits or unreasonable annual limits placed on the value of your benefits. The thing is that they can place limits on certain things that are not essential health benefits, but there is a list of essential health benefits that they have to cover. And it's actually a pretty sweet list. So here's the list. They have to cover hospitalizations. They have to cover maternity and newborn care. They have to cover mental health. They have to cover substance abuse treatment. They have to cover behavioral health treatment. They have to cover prescription drugs. And as a side note, when you hear people say that this bill was a giant giveaway to the pharmaceutical industry, that's probably what they're talking about because all of these plans have to hook you up with your legal crack. (laughs) Um, They also have to hook you up with rehabilitation services and devices. They have to pay for your laboratory services. They have to pay for all immunizations for children and adults. They have to pay for chronic disease management. They have to pay for any approved clinical trials. So if you get cancer and you want to try something new and it's been approved by the FDA, your health insurance has to pay for it. They also have to pay for pediatric care, including dental and vision for children. They have to pay for ambulances and emergency room services. And it has to say specifically in the Affordable Care Act that coverage for emergency services cannot require prior authorization. Health insurance companies can't limit coverage because the ambulance took you to an out-of-network emergency room, and if you get treatment in that out-of-network emergency room, your health insurance has to pay for your services at the hospital. Why did they feel the need to put that in the Affordable Care Act? Because the health insurance industry was actually denying people's claims because they didn't call their health insurance company and get permission to go in an ambulance. And then they had to go to a specific emergency room or else everything wouldn't be covered. And this one, actually, this part of the Affordable Care Act has already saved my family from bankruptcy. Last July, my dad had a heart attack and we got so lucky. He had one that's called the Widowmaker, but he had already called the ambulance before he had the heart attack. So the paramedics were already standing there when he actually flatlined. He died essentially five times on the way to the hospital, which is only a mile and a half away. The thing was, he did not clear that heart attack with his insurance company before he had it. And the closest hospital to his house was an out-of-network emergency room. Now, in the process of having that heart attack, he also had both of his shoulders broken, both of them so when he got to that hospital they not only had to treat him for a heart attack they also had to replace both of his shoulders he was in the hospital for 17 days had the affordable care act not been passed before this happened to my family he could have been denied for the ambulance and for all 17 days in that emergency room because he went to the wrong hospital while he was dead (laughs) that's the old system this is the new system right off the bat don't you think this is better
2: Hi, Jay. This is Dave from Wilton, Washington. I'm calling back again to respond, or I guess follow up my own thoughts on a comment that Chris from Colorado had left probably a month ago about debating with conservatives. Not that I'm obsessive at all, but I've been reading and thinking about this since then. Stumbled across what I think is a great resource. SkepticalScience.com. The idea that uh, you should be skeptical about the science of skeptics. Uh, if you will. So uh, a couple of great resources that they have on their site. One that that the reason I ended up there was the Debunking Handbook. Uh, It provides little eight-page PDF. Listeners, download it and, and read it. There's really great ideas in here about how to displace untrue thinking, whether it's the myth that global warming isn't happening, myths about evolution, myths about whatever rhetorical ways to overcome that mythological thinking and replace it with true facts. Uh, Functionally, focus on the facts. Don't draw attention to the underlying myth. Don't mention it at all, if you can get away with it. If you do explicitly identify, you know, the following is what denialists of climate change think it's not true, it's a myth, but here it is, but here are the true facts of the case. Be aware of the power of myths. The reason that they stick around is they're simple, they're easy to understand, they're easy to communicate, and very often they align with personal worldviews. So it gives thoughts on how to provide alternative narratives to the way the world really works. How to not only break the myth but replace it with factual information and how to overcome the fear that your, your worldview is going to be broken if this myth becomes untrue. Uh, for, you, know, you don't have to stop being Christian when you accept that the climate is changing. Uh, you don't have to stop being fiscally conservative if you accept that uh, gay, lesbian, trans individuals should have full rights within society. If, if you can make it less painful to the individual worldview, the true facts can become more easily absorbed. Secondly, the
13: site has an app
2: that I want to also promote it's the Skeptical Science app I know it's on Android and maybe on other platforms functionally it's a huge collection of myths about global warming that's their particular beat if you will and you navigate through pick your myth and it, 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 it it follows that same layout you know the skeptic's argument is blah 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 the science says truth 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 and then Long list of facts, resources, diagrams. It goes on to explain exactly why, you know, the soundbite about what the science says is true. It backs it up. Fantastic thing just to have on your phone. So, as always, stay awesome, Jay. Thanks.
0: Dave also sent in this clip from Rationally Speaking on this topic, and it's obviously related right here, so I'll
13: play it now.
14: No, exactly. You're, you're, you're not trying to persuade your opponent. And who is you're,
13: in your audience.
14: Exactly. You have to look at the audience. So I learned that, that lesson very quickly when I started doing debates when, when I was living in Tennessee um, mm-hmm. about what was effective and what was not effective. Mm-hmm. And it's it's pretty clear to me from, from my, at least my personal experience, and actually there is some research that sort of backs this up, uh, the thing that was important was not my arguments about science, which is why most of my colleagues, uh, you know, fail. biology, funny biology, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately fail, fail, because they come in with this idea that, well, I know the science, I'll explain to you, that's it, end of the story. And you go you'll home, smack
13: right? yourself in the forehead and say, right.
14: <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, that never happens. Right? No. <laughs> no. So what instead did happen over and over again uh, was a couple of things. Uh, the most recurrent uh, two things that were predict- predictive of positive results were if I cut my opponent line. Mm-hmm. If I could show, you know, sliding hand that he was actually misquoting somebody or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I did that a couple of times and people came after the date from the other side and said, you know, we really are disturbed by the fact that our guy was mm-hmm. lying. You know, because if he has the we truth, we
13: expect more. <laughs> exactly. Right? If he has the
14: truth, why does he have to lie? Um, and the other thing is simply uh, uh, coming across as a nice guy.
13: Be likable.
14: Yeah. You, you have mm-hmm. no idea how many people came up to me after the bed said, well, I was expecting, yes. you know, this, just, this really awful person, you know, eating babies and spitting fire and, you know, yeah. horns in there, on his head and tail and then all that sort and of you're stuff. And nice you kind of a nice
8: guy. a nice guy. I so. don't know why they thought you'd be eating babies during a debate. Everyone knows that's a bad matter. <laughs> exactly, <Clearly>. yes.
14: <laughs> Of course, after the debate, <laughs> the right. dinner you know, it's a different matter. But, yeah, but those are, in fact, the, the two things really that make an immediate impact. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, suggest that science, solid science education doesn't help. In the long term, I think it does help. It's absolutely necessary. Yeah. But if you want to get the, little, the first wedge, the first thing that makes somebody take think. you seriously, yep. think, doubt what, what they've been thinking for a long time, you don't do it through rational arguments and evidence. You do it through being likable and hopefully catching your opponent into behaviors that are not appropriate.
13: Mm-hmm. So, so I have some pretty strong feelings about debate anyway. Yes. I mean, <laughs> you know, when you think about it, when was the last time any scientific issue was decided by debate, right? I mean, why are you know debate policy, debate um, matters of opinion, but it's ridiculous to debate whether the earth Earth is ancient or young. I mean, you're absolutely you true.
14: That's really right. But but on the other hand. Um, as you said earlier, this is not a debate about science this mm-hmm. is about a debate of it 's a debate about making certain people better mm-hmm. appreciate uh, so it 's about education, mm-hmm. not science not mm-hmm. not the science so mm-hmm. one of the things that, the first things that I quickly started doing uh, during the debate is I started out for instance debating doing gish for, from the Institute for Creation research good old ironically called uh, good old yes, Duane. good old Duane. Uh, The first thing I would do, which would take some of his wind off, is I want to make clear that this is not a debate about science, this is just a debate about policy.
10: Hi, Jay, it's uh, Joe calling from Barcelona. Um, I want to just weigh in on the whole tipping issue. I grew up, obviously, in the States, but I've been living in Europe for several years. My wife is Dutch, and the, the tipping issue... Is um, has always been a bit of a uh, let's say a topic for discussion between us. Uh, I reverting to my American habit of over tipping, and she, of course, um, being perfectly content to leave some pocket change or round it up to the next euro or what have you. I have to say, after several years of living in Europe, um, I realized one thing: in that you know, if you do, uh, if you do leave a good tip, um, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get good service. Places will have good service or bad service depending on how the management um, runs that that particular establishment. And I think that's the way it should be in in uh, you know I think someone else was commenting that um, I think it was you actually that uh, by you know running on tips uh, the the actual management of the restaurant or bar. Are taking themselves out of the equation and leaving, you know, putting everything onto the servers. And uh, in the European model, everyone gets paid. It's a normal job. It's like any other customer service job. And if you get bad service, you just don't go back there again. And that's that's what we do. If we're in a restaurant and we get bad service, then um, we just won't go back to that restaurant. And and that's the way it should be. Uh, and it's up to the restaurant to make sure they have good people who do give good service, and it shouldn't have to um, rely on the public uh, tipping the servers directly. So anyway, just wanted to weigh in on that, and um, love, love uh, the podcast. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye.
3: Thanks
0: for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So today, I'm not going to say too much, but I want to start a conversation. Uh, The previous episode was about trans issues, and I I don't want for that episode to have come and gone and to have that be all the discussion there was on it. you know no calls have come in so far on the topic, but I think that there there are things to be said. I'm sure people have opinions if you uh you know liked the episode, didn't like the episode, liked parts of it, didn't like parts of it uh have thoughts on transgendered issues in general uh you know why I don't know is it starting to come to the forefront uh do we see? The, the the fight for marriage equality, at, you know, that we kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel on that one. So it, that allows us to shift our focus a little bit. We can kind of look ahead to the next obvious, uh, you know, rights issue that that needs to be tackled. Uh, you know, trans have, have been definitely pushed to the periphery in the whole uh, community of LGBTQ and so on. Um, there, There's more to be said about this. I, I would love for people to call in and give their opinions first before I – you know start saying anything uh, that i had to say on the topic uh, so anything on that subject i would love to hear from you the number again 202-999-3991 you, if if you feel more comfortable you are you are welcome to email instead i i will you know read everything that comes in and and definitely you know add those to the conversation as necessary so uh, you can reach me jay that's j a y at com. And I, I really think this is an important conversation to have because there is so much to learn about it for the average person. So few people really know what they're talking about when it comes to gender issues uh, that essentially you know, everyone listening and myself included uh, have – an enormous amount to learn from this and so the way we do that is by talking about it. If you would like to be part of that conversation I would love to hear from you and I'll probably start talking more about that in the next episode but that's going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
1: And it's a and shame how we get so trained.